This is a main current special for Inauguration Eve 2021. I'm Amy Brown, and I'm joined once again by our Elections 2020 panel. We have Ann Luther, board member for the League of Women Voters of Maine and host of the Democracy Forum here on WERU, Will Hayward, advocacy program coordinator for the League of Women Voters, former state uh, legislator Ralph Chapman, and we hope to be joined by Professor Amy Freed, chair of the political science department at the University of Maine as well. We've invited them back to get their thoughts about what has been and is happening around the transfer of power in DC. We'll be discussing Trump's lies about the election, which helped him raise a lot of money and also no doubt soothed his bruised ego, but it also led to a deadly riot at the Capitol. Uh, we'll be talking about his behavior since and where we go from here, what can be done to prevent or at least minimize such abuses of power moving forward. And uh, we are now being joined by Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine as well. Uh, Amy, can you hear us? I can, yeah. Okay, we've, already, we've just started taping, just introduced everybody. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no problem. Just glad that you're here with us. We just wanted to make sure that we stayed in time and I know some people have some time crunch. So I wanted to start with a, a go around and just have everyone who wants to weigh in on uh, because this is the last day of the Trump presidency, what do you think his legacy will be? How will history view him? Who wants to go first on that one? Uh, I think in the long view of history, it's going to be COVID. I mean, the mounting death toll, the um, inaction, the mismanagement, the lack of federal. I mean, there's been a lot of bad stuff. The list of bad stuff is pretty long. But this is a continuing catastrophe. And I think once we start reflecting back on it with the long lens of history, all those deaths are going to be the legacy. Well, I, I would say that uh, as serious as the COVID situation is, clearly uh, badly mismanaged. Uh, this is the first president of the country that has actively uh, torn down our democracy, uh, uh, inciting a riot of insurrection against the legislative branch is, is beyond uh, anything that uh, I think the country has seen before. So uh, I, I, I find that is likely to be um, uh, a major component of his legacy. At least since Reconstruction. I mean, there was some bad stuff that happened during Reconstruction, but um, since then, for sure. I think that I will, will um, agree with Ralph mostly on this one. Um, I think, you know, as it was clear that we were going to have a transition of power, I think a lot of people did start to wonder, you know, what is um, President Trump's legacy going to be? And um Suddenly, we wouldn't have guessed, I think, that that legacy would be defined by an event during this transition period. But um, just the threat to, you know, the legitimacy of future elections, that's everything that's happened since the election has set off, and especially the events of January 6th, I, I hope those are, I hope those are, that's an, a legacy that's an aberration, and, you know, we continue to respect the democratic norms of um, our democracy. But I think that could be a legacy that um, you know bleeds into the future that I'm very worried about. Professor Amy Freed. 
Yeah, I would identify an authoritarian impulse that was um, incited. I mean, it was a, it, there were there was some of that in uh, in this country, and it has come up at various points in American history. But uh, that was Trump's overall presentation throughout his public career, and he. Uh, it was it, it was really seen throughout his presidency in various ways. And I think a lot of the things others have mentioned already tie to that. You have this emphasis on, a, on, on the loyalists, which is part of that, who are not necessarily competent. So when you have something that happens like a pandemic and you need competent, competent people, you don't turn to them, you turn to loyalists. And uh, with that, there's, a, I think, a lot of corruption that's gone somewhat under the radar for the public because there's so many other things that have happened, but I think will be written up and um, explored through the legal system and through journalism in the time, in the time to come. And I, I would say I'm, I'm very concerned that this is not the end of that. I mean, in some ways... Maybe I'm moving along to another topic here, but like in some ways, although there's definitely a, a clampdown on what happened, um, you know, people are getting arrested, there's prosecutions, there's going to be more and more of those of people, there's going to be implication, more implications for people in Congress who uh, supported some of what happened, maybe not the insurrection itself, but the, uh, you know, not uh, certifying the election. The, the lies. There's a lot of implications to that, but I think these folks on the far right who are domestic terrorists are not going away. I think they're excited by what happened. And uh, I, I, it's a very frightening prospect that they have been, you know, really incentivized, I think, as far as they're concerned. Do you think there's a silver lining in the fact that they all seem to be pretty open online about saying what they plan to do. They would rather make a political statement against masks than wear masks while committing crimes on camera. Uh, They're out in the open now. If nothing else, people who did not believe the extent of the problem of hate groups in the country can no longer deny that. And they are no longer in hiding. So is there some benefit to that, that these people are now easier to identify and uh, monitor possibly, at least the folks who are, are very dangerous. Well, I guess that would account for anyone probably who's in a hate group, but uh, is that maybe going to make it easier to deal with moving forward? Maybe, and I, I mean, I do think one, and I can't even call it a silver lining, but one, thing that has happened since January 6th is uh, a much broader acknowledgement of the threat that white supremacy and extreme white right-wing militarism and domestic terrorism presents in our country. And uh, um, I mean, cracking down isn't the right word, but you do see an enhanced awareness among many departments of law enforcement, that this is a serious threat that needs to be seriously addressed, which I hope will continue. And just to add, I think that also 
with with everything we saw on January 6th, I think there's also a wider awareness of the role that the internet and you know social media play in this. Um, I think it was you know it was undeniable that um, you know things such as the QAnon conspiracy theory, for instance, um, you know the signs were everywhere on, on January 6th, and it was just so plainly apparent how. Um, you know, the role of these things spreading over social media and elsewhere were just such a big part of this. And we've seen some action since then, I think, that is helping to, you know, I, a lot of people and a lot of people who've studied this would say years too late, but, um, you know, starting to address this. And I think there's going to be a lot of questions about how to manage that going forward. You know, there's this, you know, the censorship question to me isn't a legal one, but right now, um, you know, these platforms choosing this censor, everyone agrees they have, you know, that right on their own platform, but there is, you know, profound societal implications on how that's managed that we'll have to think about going forward. Um, so other liberal democracies have taken much more proactive steps right. in dealing with this than, than ours has. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm glad you raised it because the Democracy Forum in February is going to talk about this a little bit. So Great. stay tuned. Let us not forget that the corporate uh, me, uh, media, the uh, Rupert Murdoch's, the Mark Zuckerberg's have, have made billions of dollars on promoting false narratives. And they, uh, the, the fact that we've seen a little bit of a turnaround only in the last two weeks uh, suggests that um, uh, uh, I, don't, I, I don't think that they are the ones who can, can lead a, uh, a correction to the problem that is largely one that they've helped create. Right. Well, one I, interesting thing uh, when it comes to Fox is that they issue, ended up issuing various statements saying that the lie about Dominion voting machines was, in fact, <laughs> untrue. And that's because well, they the were getting, getting Dominion, sued. they're getting sued. Yeah, <laughs> yes. they're getting sued. A lot of people are getting sued. So in some ways, this is like companies versus other companies that are going to promote it because we can't really stop free speech in the same way as, you know, let's say Germany does with any kind of Nazi propaganda, because we have different, a different constitution, a different legal system and all of that. Um, I'll just mention that my Bangor Daily News column this week, which is online now, it'll be in the physical print edition tomorrow, talks about this whole issue and I have, you know, what I call three cures for what's ailing our body politic. And I, I don't think it's comprehensive at all. Um, and I have to think more about this <laughs> and really look forward to the Tuesday, I mean, the February Democracy uh, Forum <laughs> to hear more from, uh, from others. But I mean, the things that, two of the things that I mentioned have to do with people within the Republican party taking steps. First of all, recognizing and taking seriously right-wing terrorism instead, in, in, you know, like there were people who were, did not even, I don't know. I mean, Senator Collins said she initially thought it was Iran attacking. I mean, why would she think that? I woke up that morning afraid of what would happen. Um, I, I, and I know less about, you know, the details of threats than she does. She's on the intelligence committee. She's been on the Homeland Security Committee. So people who do not at all support that sort of thing, which I'm sure is true of Senator Collins, have to be cognizant of the threat. And they also have to take steps to think of, to, to go 
uh, confront it within their own party because we know that somewhere around 75, 80% of Republicans believe that the election was stolen. And Mitt Romney stood up and said, you don't respond to misinformation by just, uh, you know, tolerating it or, or, or giving people a, a place to express it. You tell them the truth. And I think that's what we're going to need in part. But I also say my third thing is that we have to do things to show people that government can work for them. And part of that is improving democracy, participation, you know, passing HR1, for example, um, and also showing that, that, that we can solve problems. So if we can have a government that comes in and makes people's lives better, starting with controlling the pandemic, but, go, and the, uh, but going beyond that, I think that actually could make some difference. But I, I'm sure there are other things too. Um, Amy, you know. let me jump in here real quick. Uh, for listeners who are just joining us, that was Professor Amy Fried, you referred to your column in the Bangor Daily. What is that called? So people... uh, let me see if I can f- <laughs> I have to remember. find it. Oh, it's called Three Cures, Three Cures for our Unhealthy Politics. Okay, so people can watch for that if they want. Uh, a lot in what you were saying, but one thing I want to tap into before we get into more of the nitty gritty moving forward of possible solutions. Um, I think that January 6th is going to become one of those days that's kind of similar to uh, 9-11 or Kennedy being shot when people were can kind of have this shared moment of what were you doing? What were you thinking when that happened? Uh, Amy, or you said you woke up in the morning expecting something bad was going to happen. Can you talk about, and then maybe everybody else can weigh in just what your impressions were, how you watched it? Were you doing something else and trying to like sneak a peek on your phone or how did, how, how was that for you? watching the whole day unfold? Well, I mean, I was concerned knowing that, you know, President Trump had said to come and that things were going to be wild and knowing, you know, something about some of the background. The, really, the, the person who, to me, has always known the most about what was going to happen, who I know personally is my husband, who isn't a political scientist. He's a remodeling contractor. Uh, who's been for years reading the Daily Stormer and other far right websites to get a sense of what these people are saying, just doing his own sort of like citizen research on it. And when I said to him, gee, I hope it's not too bad today, he said, oh, no, it's going to be really bad. And when I texted him in the middle of the day uh, about what was happening, he was like, yeah, that's about that doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, I was doing some work. I was, uh, whatever it was, I was, I was writing or working on a syllabus or something. And, um, I was, um, I ha- but I had in the background, the Senate debate, which was starting about the, uh, electoral votes. And, uh, all of a sudden I could, it's someone in the middle of talking. One of the senators just stopped and I was like, Oh, what happened? what happened? Why did they stop? Or, you know, maybe it's some problem because it was on my computer. Maybe it's my computer. And I looked and, you know, this whole thing was starting to happen. And really for the rest of the afternoon, I I had a terrible time getting anything else done uh, because it was, uh, you know, so hard. Uh, Because this, I mean, this is really, it's not just that, initially I was more like just upset and 
about it and anxious about it. And then I started getting angry as time went on. Uh, but I mean, really, the we know now that there were people who, you know, a lot more people whose lives were in danger. I mean, they were they were chanting, hang Mike Pence. Um, and, you know, so we managed to avoid a lot worse things that happened. But really, it is, I agree that it's on the par with 9-11. In some ways, worse, not as many people killed, thank God, but uh, that our own people did it, to me, makes it, you know, really bad. It wasn't outsiders. Right. Anyone else want to share your impressions of that day? Sure. Um, so I... This is Will Hayward. Yeah, I, I grew up actually in the D.C. area, and I've, I've worked in D.C. before. And the one thing that everyone who's worked or been around D.C. knows generally is, you know, you do not touch federal buildings, federal property, like you don't go, you know, you don't come close, you've got no, you're not getting close to it. So, you know, my expectations going into the day was it would be, you know, Trump would whip these people up into a frenzy, there might be some scuffles with, um, you know, and, you know, counter protesters that could get violent or possibly deadly. And I was worried about all that. But that was pretty much the extent of what I expected. And then, you know, as the day went on, you know, Rudy Giuliani early in the day talking about we need to have a trial by combat, um, things like that. I guess that's when I should have realized that, you know, the gasoline was really being poured for this to become a serious thing. But it didn't really, really set in until um, I, you know, some people I follow, you know, reporters were posting links to like live streams from people in the crowd because we know this was very well documented by the people carrying it out. And when I saw them up on the steps of the Capitol and, you know, officers having to move back and go inside, that's when I realized like, oh, no, like, you know, people could die and people did die. Um, and it could have been honestly, you know, so much, so much worse. But once it got to that point where they were up on the Capitol steps, that's when I think this is probably true for a lot of people. My, my productivity for the day was just, just shot. I, I it was, you know, it's one of those moments where you wonder, you know, like, am I seeing what part of, am I seeing the death of our democracy? What part of the death of our democracy? <laughs> am, are we possibly seeing, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a day that's going to stick with me and having been there and, you know, knowing what what that area is normally like and just seeing it overrun like that's one of the most surreal things I've ever seen. Which is the invisible obvious. I mean, that's what the commentators have said, that the, the Capitol Police and law enforcement just did not expect that of um, white Republicans, right? They just did not even see it coming. And um, that that's such a huge blind spot, which we've been talking about for a long time with Black Lives Matter and everything else. But the um, the way law law enforcement, um, I mean, we we heard from law enforcement agencies in other countries who say they train with the U.S. for this kind of thing all the time, and our law enforcement did not do anything that they trained to do in a, in a situation like they, this. They didn't do any of it. Right. They didn't do anything that they've done to any other mass protests that I've been to in 30 years. Right. Well, so. and, and, and they didn't, you know, the lack of response is really one of the things that sticks with me too. It's like, why did it take so long to get other people there? And that 
has to be investigated. We need, we need a 9-11 style commission to look into that among other things, you know. Yeah. You're muted, Amy. Thanks. There were some calls uh, for help that were gone unanswered. It's it's being revealed. I want to just uh, pause for a moment and re- let listeners know you're listening to a WERU Main Current special. We have our crew from the Elections 2020 uh, panel here uh, rejoining us today. This um, Thankfully, this crew is up for extra specials every time we think we're done with the election 2020 edition. Uh, they are, you just heard from Professor Amy Fried, chair of the political science department at the University of Maine. And prior to that, I think Ann Luther had weighed in. She's the chair of the democracy or the host of the democracy forum here on WERU and also a board member for the League of Women Voters of Maine. Will Hayward had jumped in there. He is also uh, with the League of Women Voters. He's an advocacy uh, program coordinator. And Ralph Chapman is a former state legislator. Uh, Anne and Ralph, I don't think either of you have, wait, did you either of you want to say more or jump in at all about the sixth and what you witnessed them? I mean, it was just the culmination of a, an extremely, um, norm-breaking, norm-shattering, democracy-threatening administration, the lies, the monetizing the presidency, um, the emolument-sucking, I mean, the um, politicization of our civil service, just in every single direction, it has been um, norm-shattering and threatening to our democracy. And I mean, as you said before, when when I think back, you know, I think we talked about this the last time to the administration of Richard Nixon and what he did to get impeached. It was Republicans who impeached him and the tolerance that the Republican Party in the Senate has shown for this presidency. I mean, I think Amy said that is going to have to change. I mean, people have got to um, put some of these important tenets of democracy ahead of majority rule at some point, or we're never going to be able to um, to recover some of the basic things that we believed in before. So let's remember who it is that is responsible for the maintenance of our constitutional democracy. It is not the people. It is the governmental officials. Now, it's not said in words in the Constitution, but the structure of the Constitution is very clear. Uh, members of the government are not permitted to take official acts in their roles as members of the government unless and until they swear an oath or make an affirmation that they will support the constitutions of the United States. And uh, we have a, 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 a tremendous number, hundreds hundreds of Congress people now in violation of their oath of office, which itself is an impeachable offense. Now, there's no practical way that hundreds of Congress people will be impeached, but we've lost sight of what the responsibilities are. Uh, the powers of impeachment and the accompanying trial um, are not in the Constitution in order to balance the powers Uh, between the branches of government, nor are they in the Constitution to allow for uh, what I'll call political discretion at at exercising power. They are there as a requirement 
of officials to protect the democracy. And the, the matters of, it, it isn't simply that House members, for example, have the power to impeach. It's their duty to impeach if somebody breaks their oath of office. And we have a, a mass breaking of oaths of office here amongst uh, especially Republicans. But while we're mentioning that, uh, let's not forget that the successful coup in America in 1898, uh, overtaking the government of Wilmington, North Carolina, was a Democrat-led white supremacist coup. Uh, so uh, it isn't as though um, all the blame uh, can be foisted on uh, a single political party, but the, the nature that political parties are more self-interested than adhering to their legal requirements to protect the Constitution is extremely concerning. And it's why I think we are currently in a failed democracy. Yeah, Amy Free, go ahead. Just jump in here, any of you, anytime okay. you want to add something. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with what Ralph said quite a lot. On the other hand, we managed to get to the point of having the people's will respected. And as long as nothing truly horrible happens in the next 24 hours, Joe Biden will be sworn in as president uh, because some people did uphold their oaths and the judiciary performed very well. They looked at you know, the cases that were brought to them. They took seriously the law. They took seriously the evidence. Uh, you had a lot of election officials who also did that. You know, you look at what's happened in Georgia, the Secretary of State there has been under enormous pressure. You know, he had that phone call that uh, the president made to him to put pressure on him. He didn't fold. You had election officials in Michigan who now may have suffered some consequences for being, you know, the ones that had to, who had to uh, confirm the, uh, you know, the vote um, at a county level, say, or a state level, but they did their duty. And, and there were some, you know, I mean, let's look at Mitch McConnell, who I am critical on for many things, but he did say this is, you know, the vote was not stolen and their job was to confirm the electoral vote or Mary Cheney, who's in the leadership in the house. So we have some examples like that. It's just that we need more. And political parties can uh, suffer politically in the short term if they go against part of their constituency. But ultimately, if they're, I think if the Republican Party is going to survive, it's going to have to move beyond this. For one thing, this is just a massive turnoff to most voters to be on the side of insurrection and not listening to the American people. I mean, they, I think, you know, they, I think they're going to have to do that. And, and that's maybe some of the positive incentives there. On the other hand, you know, they're worried in the short term that their own people are dangerous to them and not just politically dangerous. There's some House members who said that they they felt coerced into their vote uh, and in not accepting the Electoral College because of uh, the threat of violence. Well, you have a QAnon supporter who's new in Congress who's insisting on carrying her gun. So that potential for danger, I mean, I, after having just gone through that experience with people being traumatized, I mean, that perception is definitely there. I want to talk about uh, what measures could be put in place at 
Trump has tested, he's found and exploited as many ways, it seems, as a president could possibly exploit their power. He uh, issuing pardons now, which he's not the only one who's done this, but issuing pardons to people who refuse to testify against him in investigations and his cronies possibly considering issuing pardons to his kids and himself, issue giving his, his family members jobs for which they were completely not qualified in security clearances within the White House, um, using pressure tactics on local officials to try to get them to change election results, completely lying about the results of the election in what may have been, who knows with his mental health, if, that, if he actually believed that initially, but it certainly served him to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, in, which gave him no incentive to back off that lie. And when people hear a lie that, they, that fits with what reality they want reality to be, they're more inclined to believe it. So, and, and many, many other things. But moving forward, rather than just depending on people to be ethical and honest and have some kind of moral compass, do there need to be some limits uh, put in place? Like, for example, the pardon power, does that need to be limited somehow? Uh, and what else? What other steps uh, does there need to be a nepotism policy at the White House? I mean, that doesn't seem to be one of the major concerns right now, but uh, what would you like to see if you were to come up with several different items that could make it so that the presidency was less likely to be a position that could be just completely exploited for, for one's personal gain? And I'll name one. That? This is Ann Luther. It's uh, nonpartisan redistricting commissions everywhere. I mean, I, th I think that the way gerrymandering has played out in states across the country, it's led to uh, extremists, hard right people being elected in very safe districts. And the, the fact that um, those people can act with impunity and without political consequences in a way, as Ralph says, that violates their oath of office. Um, I think that's like one of the number one things, if we can get rid of nonpartisan redistricting, or if we, if we can get nonpartisan redistricting com commissions and get rid of extreme gerrymandering, it's going to be a lot harder for people to escape the political consequences of this kind of behavior. And I think reforming our information ecosystem, as Will alluded to earlier, is maybe number two on my list. You mean primarily social media? Or right, right. How... Well, I'll let others weigh in. And if we have time, let's get back to that because that's a that's a pretty big one. Yeah. So I agree with Ann Luther uh, about the, the the need for uh, uh, the reform she speaks of. I, I think also uh, even ranked choice voting would help. Uh, we need to we need to remove some of the power that the parties have. The parties. Look how it's empowered Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, right, Ralph? Yeah. Well, Go ahead. she got elected with a write-in after losing a primary so right so the it, but the the parties as as i've as we've mentioned several times here have um seemed to put their own interests before the interests of the of our democracy and that's to the detriment of our democracy so those things which will uh, uh tone down the power of the parties uh provide some uh, balance, some checks and balances to the party power, I think is an important 
ingredient. Mm-hmm. I, for me, I keep coming back to Congress's role of oversight of the executive branch and how, you know, in the Constitution, uh, Congress has all of these powers to, you know, regulate what the executive branch does, you know, confirmations, impeachment, all of this, but Congress just it does not perform its duty. It cedes so much to the legislature. I mean, sorry, to the executive branch. Um, Foreign policy has always been ceded far too much by Congress. And now we see it with domestic policy and, you know, just letting the executive branch govern by executive order, um, use, you know, acting appointments um, so they don't have to go through Congress for some of the most egregious ones that they install. Um, and frankly, I think this can all start start with impeaching Donald Trump. Um, the League of Women Voters of the U.S. has actually put out a statement, you know, calling for the impeachment and barring from future office of Donald Trump because, as, to go back to something Ralph said, you know, he violated his oath of office. And I think that all public officials need to take that oath of office seriously, both in they're performing its duties and holding others who do not perform those duties um, accountable. And so I think that if the U.S. Congress can reassert its role in policymaking and oversight of the legislative branch, I think that'll go a long way towards um, restoring our democracy to where it should be. Will that also take away the other benefits that Trump gets, the security moving forward and the pay? And That's as I understand it, it does. If, if he's convicted, uh, Amy Free, do you know the answer yeah, I, to that? I think so. I think so. Um, and on some of these uh, reforms or potential reforms, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of it, but I would also point out with the districts and what's happened with districts, gerrymandering is certainly a factor, but it might be something like 50% of the reason why what's going on, because we have this other thing that's happened, which is that people are are living in places and moving in places which are just more similar than they used to be. There's this uh, variety of political views with any particular, you know, with many counties. You have all of these, you have the big increase in what are called landslide counties where one party wins in overwhelming numbers, uh, you know, and so that is very, you can't really fix that that easily if you have a lot of people you know, if you have counties close to each other that are also very similar. Uh, Part of it is because, you know, and, you know, like you look at urban areas, it's very hard to break up large parts of, let's say, New York City in a way that Republicans are able to win. They win in Staten Island because that's the Republican area, but the rest of it is not going to be winnable for a Republican. So, you know, they're just heavily Democratic areas. And but look at what they did in Columbus, Ohio. They drew the districts in a pie shape so that each the urban center got divided up into all of these little, little wedges and associated with all those suburban districts. So Columbus never elects a Democrat, even though Columbus itself is heavily Democratic. Yeah, and you could, you, you, that happens sometimes in other places as well. So yeah, the districting thing is important, but it's it is also affected by the settlement patterns and, and that's a thing to keep in mind that will only take you so far. Now it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but I think getting back to what Amy Brown mentioned in the beginning, there probably are things that can be done to control the president to you know, really lay out in some more detail, um, you know, 
some things that that haven't been so clear. What how you know what what's what do you mean by the emoluments clause or um, other ways to restrict the president? Except, I mean the the problem is one: we're always fighting the last war in the sense that any reforms are in relation to this particular thing that just happened, as with the post Watergate reforms. Um, and we may be missing some things, not that we shouldn't do things, we should, and look at what happened and figure out how they could have been prevented, kind of reverse engineer. But the other thing is some of these things are gonna raise all kinds of constitutional issues that the Supreme Court may not go along with. For example, uh, the court, the Congress passed way back in 1974, the War Powers Act to restrict the president in terms of military activities and they had to be all this consultation and you know all, let have votes and all that and the and the supreme court basically said no <laughs> if congress wants to control the president when it comes to war you have one main tool and that's the power of the purse vote not to support it when it comes to the dollars for that military incursion but you can't like really make the president come and ask you ahead of time even though at the same time you know, the Constitution says only Congress has the right to declare war. That's right there in Article One. So anything that we put up now, we may that that gets passed could run into constitutional issues. Um, and um, I mean, I don't know if we know enough about these these particular individuals on the court, how strong they are, the newer ones towards executive power. But they, there has been a very strong emphasis on that. I need to jump in here and just remind listeners that this is a special inauguration eve edition of Maine Currents on WERU. I'm Amy Brown. My guests today are Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, who you just heard from, uh, Ann Luther, who I think you're about to hear from next. Uh, she's a board member from the League of Women Voters of Maine, and she hosts Democracy Forum here on WERU. Uh, uh, Ralph Chapman is a former state representative, and Will Hayward is the advocacy program coordinator for the League of Women Voters as well. Uh, Ann, go ahead and jump in here. I was just, as Amy was reflecting on the, some of the post-Watergate reforms and reforms that might be coming down the pike in the present moment, I was thinking about all of the campaign finance reforms that came out after Watergate. I mean, serious reforms that came out. And... A lot of them got overturned right away. Buckley v. Vallejo was in response to some of those. And a lot of them got sort of eroded over time until um, Citizens United, you know, basically just completely disemboweled what was left of those campaign finance reforms post Watergate. So, I mean, it is, it's a true that whatever reforms we pass now may run into a hostile court. Um, it's also true though, that money in politics is still a big problem. And it's been so interesting to watch in the wake of January 6th, how corporate America has finally um, demanded some accountability of the candidates that they have indiscriminately propped up through their um, segregated fund giving and how immediately that got the attention of their leadership. I want to talk just a little bit before we uh, finish up here, and I want to leave time at the end to um, ask you all what you're looking forward to with the Biden administration. We'll give you a few minutes for that and also in to tell us again about your upcoming a democracy forum program in February. But before we go to that, just if we could touch back on social media, 
what can be done about that? And also thinking post 9-11, when the Patriot Act got rushed through, like how do we make sure that any uh, protections that are put in place now don't have the scope of overreach that the Patriot Act does? You know, these kinds of times make people ripe for uh, passing legislation that's 4,000 pages long in two hours or accepting really restrictive draconian measures because we want to feel safe. So how to balance that, you know, and maybe social media is a good jumping off point. I mean, those are private platforms. No one has a right to a Facebook account or a Twitter account. And uh, there are people who argue that they do a lot more harm than they do good <laughs> just in terms of their existence. So uh, anyone want to weigh in on how issues raised by uh, social media could be addressed without too much overreach or should they just be you know banned altogether i mean one thing you hear about talked about i'm not sure how viable a solution or not this is but it is it's to you know treat these platforms like public utilities you know recognizing that the way they're used and you know just their scope they're effectively you know monopoly platforms that you know they they are part of sort of the public's um you know the public uses them they're they're where news we've seen this the past four years with twitter you know like they're where news is made and shared and it's it's we would take a lot of ambition and a lot of planning that I don't have the background on to outline a vision of what exactly that looks like. But to me, that's one of the um, approaches that gets it helps reduce sort of this conflict between, you know, it being a private platform and then um, but then still serving these very public, you know, public interest purposes as well. I mean, those of you who read Heather Cox Richardson's newsletter will have seen her referring lately to the Fairness Doctrine and the demise of the Fairness Doctrine, which opened up the window of opportunity on broadcast radio for first Rush Limbaugh and then many, many others who were able to put stuff into the information ecosystem without challenge. That was just, you know, not true. Um, now, we in the wake of January 6th, we have started to see some of the social media platforms cracking down, both by kicking users off um, and by doing more aggressive and visible fact checking, like this is not true, um, right in your face. And I think there's probably a lot more that we could talk about. Um, and I, I I haven't really done the research, but I want to look to what other liberal democracies around the world have been, what steps they've been taking to corral some of these trends. Um, Anyone else want to weigh in on that? I, I don't think we can trust the uh, corporation, private corporations that have uh, been rewarded so handsomely with uh, really billions of dollars to trust them to self-regulate. Uh, I, I like Will Hayward's suggestion that thinking of it as a monopoly, I mean, a a, a utility, which is a, a monopoly in exchange for regulation, uh, would provide a mechanism for some regulation. But I think we also have to look at the accountability of 
what I'll call public officials, in, in a sense, were reluctant to squelch the speech of a common person who, regardless of how, um, how unhinged their comments might be, uh, were reluctant to, uh, to, to, to squelch that speech because we understand the value of free speech. At the same time, when uh, a public official who has a responsibility, a constitutional responsibility, violates their constitutional responsibility in, in promoting or in sharing or in repeating uh, the unhinged and, and false narratives that are, have been spoken and then claim a free speech right uh, to me, that's that's uh, that's going too far. So I would like to see accountability on the part of uh, public officials. For example, in the in the uh, judicial system, uh, a lawyer is is not allowed to uh, give false information to a to a court, and is subject to being disbarred if they do. So, of the five dozen lawsuits that the Trump campaign or Trump filed around the country challenging the election, they're very careful not to, not to declare there was fraud because so doing in court would have led them to being potentially disbarred. No, but so doing on Twitter just makes you popular. Right. So, so if we can find ways of holding public officials accountable in the same way that lawyers in a court could be at least in principle held accountable, uh, I think that would help. Okay, I'm going to stop that conversation there so that there's time for each of you to take a couple of minutes and talk about what you're looking forward to in the next four years. And uh, Anne, also, if you could add on a little bit again about your program coming up in February. We're, um, we've been do we're doing a three-part series about how to cross the political divide. If you listened last Friday, it was about conversations with um, – people that you are afraid of or that you have big disagreements with. The one um, in February is about the information ecosystem and managing that, what reforms we can take and how people fall prey to lies and conspiracy theories. And then the last one is going to be on the psychology. Like, why do people believe this stuff and what makes people susceptible to these weird ideas? Um, so that's the three-part series, January, February, and March. And I hope people will follow along with that. I mean, Sounds great. I'm just, I'm, I'm just so relieved that we're getting some competent professionals heading up these agencies. It's like, okay, good. People really know what they're doing. These are, they are not loyalists. These are people who have skills, who have management ability. These departments are going to start to be well run again. And um, we're looking forward to HR one, which we hope is going to also be introduced in the Senate, which has a lot of great democracy reforms, including the redistricting thing that I talked about before. So I really hope we can pass that. I would agree very strongly with both of those things. Um, this is Will Hayward. And just said, I would also add that I think for everyone's sake, certainly all of us, you know, doing this, doing this and doing everything via Zoom, I'm very excited to see what um, plan for what the plan for COVID is is and how it's rolled out. Um, there was a great New York Times article yesterday, or maybe it was the day before, that essentially was like this plan. You know, 
it's unbelievable that a plan like this wasn't already what the government is doing. You know, what, what Biden is planning to do with vaccine production and, you know, actions taken by the federal government to co- coordinate COVID response. Um, I think that just having a real professionally run plan is going to go so far towards getting our lives back to back to normal in 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 so many ways and that's I mean I think that's just going to do so much for so much for everyone so that's that's honest that's number one for me and 1a would be HR1 as well which you know we've all talked about a bit here but it's something I'm really really excited for for the prospect of helping keep our strengthen our democracy um, going into the future. Thanks, Will. Ralph, you want to go next? Ralph yes, surely. Uh, I'm looking forward to a wider rec- cultural recognition of the role that white supremacy has played in our politics and in our society. I think that uh, it's. Uh, I- I'm looking forward to the uh, communities of color uh, taking greater leadership roles and uh, leading us to a place where we can come to a better understanding of, of, of what the ills are uh, that have run throughout our history. Uh, I mentioned earlier the uh, massacre of Wilmington in 1898. Uh, to me, this is an important point of history. And yet, uh, in my American history classes growing up, uh, of course, it was never mentioned. And we have a, a wide variety of things to to learn about and understand in order to, uh, uh, and, and I'm looking forward to the social movement uh, led by uh, especially people of color that will help us uh, overcome that problem. Great, thanks. Professor Amy Fried, you get the final word. Yes, in terms of uh, policy, I, I certainly agree with a lot of what has been said. And I what I'm really happy to see is that the approach of the Biden administration, a lot of the appointments, besides being very competent and professional, that it's from a couple of different points of view. One is that the loyalty is not to an individual, but to doing the job and serving the American people and you know, doing it in a way that respects the constitution and the law. Um, and, and another is that there's a, a multifaceted view of things. So when you have people introduced who are working on public policy to do with health and dealing with COVID, they're also concerned at the same time with racial disparities. Um, and when you have people who are, you know, doing things in, in uh, any other, a lot of other areas with, you know, energy, of course, but uh, transportation, they're concerned with issues of climate change. Um, So they're thinking about multiple things at the same time, besides, you know, kind of a narrow view of what their portfolio is, and what kind of impacts that it has, um, you know, more broadly. So I I think it's uh, really a, a wonderful set of people that have been introduced already more to come. And I hope that, you know, the Senate will certainly work with the the Biden administration. It's helpful that they have a narrow majority, but they're going to all need to to work together to to pass some legislation and, you know, to get through these confirmations. Great. And uh, just one more quick go around with contact information where people can follow your work, starting with you, Amy. Well, I mean, you can read my 
biweekly column in the Bangor Daily News and uh, among other things. And does the column have, you gave the title of this latest column, but does the column itself have a name? Well, it was getting uh, put under the category of, I had a, a, a blog called Pollways, but the BDN has kind of pulled back on its blogging. So they really just get listed one, one by one, um, you know, uh, but they're in the, uh, they're in the opinion section. And Okay. And do you have a website for your books as well? Well, my book is posted under Amazon and the Columbia University Press websites right now. It's going to be coming out in probably early summer, the war against government. Um, and I'm currently doing copy editing for it. So it really is in production, which is, which is Great. nice. Great. Thanks. Uh, Will and League of Women Voters contact information and also you are you still having online events, education events in addition to doing a the lot. democracy forum? Yeah, lwvme.org. And there are events, multiple events every week. Um, actually, today is the launch party for our campaign for a national popular vote. So check out our website for more about that and all the other stuff we're working on. Mm -hmm. And I would just add also the second week in February, we're going to be doing a week of action that's, you know, kind of coinciding with some of the work in the main legislature, but we'll also be touching on a lot of these national issues that we've talked about as well. So definitely check out that events page. We're going to have a lot of exciting events, especially that week. Great. Thanks. Ralph Chapman, you don't have much of a presence online that I've been able to find. I did find a Wikipedia page for you, but uh, is there a place that you write some as a citizen scientist as well? People know you on WERU as being one of the people uh, while you were in the legislature who came and spoke a lot about the uh, scientific details behind some of the mining proposals. Do you have your, your work up anywhere where people can access it? Well, I, I used to have a web page and I'm, I, I let it go. Uh, but um, why don't I take this opportunity to suggest that people can be involved uh, with their government, not only by voting and by taking an interest in national politics and in state politics, but also in local politics. Uh, we all live in communities that have uh, school boards, they have planning boards, they have budget and advisory committees, uh, they have town councils, they have selectmen, uh, various structures of government at the local level. And there's plenty of opportunity for people to be involved at their local level and talk with their neighbors and, and look to them improve uh, uh, the dignity of our democracy. Great. Well, thank you all so much. I appreciate your being here. You've been listening to a special edition, special inauguration Eve edition of Main Currents here on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. My guests today were Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, former State Representative Ralph Chapman, Ann Luther, board member for the League of Women Voters of Maine and the host of the Democracy Forum here on WERU. <laughs> And Will Hayward, sorry about that. Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Coordinator for the League of Women Voters. Main Currents, independent local news, views, and culture normally airs on the first Tuesday of every month at 4 p.m. Be sure to also catch the Democracy Forum on the third Friday of every month, also 4 to 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShot coming up next here on Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org.